0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I like the, the narrative of a journey. I feel like the easiest way to tell the story of a river is to, to follow its own story, um, to, to see where it's born, to see the, the twists and turns and arcs of its life, and to, to finish with its conclusion.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Leon McCarran. Leon is a writer, broadcaster and explorer. He's likely best known for his long distance expeditions and over the past decade he's travelled over 50,000 kilometres on foot. He's now living in Iraq where he's working on multiple projects including the creation of the Zagros Mountain Trail which he co-founded in 2022. In this episode we talk about Leon's latest major expedition and the resulting book, Wounded Tigress. In 2021, Leon made the journey along the full length of the Tigris River, taking him through Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. That river was the lifeblood of ancient Mesopotamia, and is now under serious threat. This episode is longer than usual, as there was so much to talk about, from Leon's personal views on modern-day Iraq and why he chooses to live there, through to the intricate details of the journey and what he experienced and discovered on that river. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetrack.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Leon McCarran. So, as I'll have likely said in the intro when I record it, um, you and I have spoken on this podcast before. So this episode is very much not the life and times of Leon. It's um, about a specific journey. And I think an obvious and logical place to start would be to ask you to introduce your new book and talk about, I guess, the concept for it and the inspiration for it.
1: Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be back speaking with you. Um, the book is called "Wonder Tigress. A river journey through the cradle of civilization. And it's about the Tigris River, which is one of these two great rivers of civilization in what at least in the in the Greek times was called Mesopotamia. These two rivers that start in modern-day Turkey and wind their way through the mountains and down into an area that has also been called the Fertile Crescent. Um, and eventually they they come together and run out into the, the Gulf, the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf. And um, they, I focused on the Tigris because I've been living in Iraq. The Tigris predominantly runs through this country. It, it strikes right through the heart of Iraq. The, the, the Euphrates, which is the other river, comes in too, um, but uh, it spends a lot of time in Syria as well. And, and so the Tigris is the story of the Tigris. In many ways, can also be seen as as part of the story of modern Iraq. And so my book was an attempt to follow the river from source to sea and to look at its past and present and future, to look at this river that fed the earliest civilizations on Earth, where the first cities as we know it came together, where the first written word was carved into clay tablets, where the first sailing boats were invented, where, um, where the first... Beer was brewed, where the first love songs were written. Um, it's a place that really catalyzed a lot of the things that we still enjoy and and consider a central part of our lives and societies today. So I wanted to look back at how you know, this wonderful, simple, beautiful geographical feature like a river could be the the beginning of, of all of these things that that we we enjoy to this very day. But also to see how that's changed. Um, over the ages and, and one of the things that interested me about it was that I don't know about you but but certainly for me growing up in Northern Ireland um, the, the Tigers and Euphrates weren't a central part of my education um, you know I, I, I probably knew their names I, I maybe knew, I'd heard of Mesopotamia but it was not something that ever came up in, in what I studied um, the Nile a little bit more um, but you know, even that wasn't uh, a huge part of, of what I was educated with. And um, I think it's it's curious to me that this river, which has had such a, a big impact on on life as we know it, is not necessarily all that well-known and isn't part of our curriculums, in, at least in the UK and I think in, in many other parts of the world too. So, so part of my ambition for this book was to, it's kind of a pitch to the readers as to, to why this river... Is worth understanding um, why it's worth thinking about in that historical context, and then looking at at, at where it is right now, um, what it's gone through in the in the last twelve thousand years since um, people came down from the mountains and started to work with the river and um, and, and build their lives around it, uh, and also in the last decade with the the various things that we probably are. Generally, much more familiar with in terms of um, the various conflicts and um, and other disasters that have fallen upon Iraq. Uh, and finally, to look at the future of of what happens, what, what's at stake for all of us if we lose one of these great rivers of civilization. Um, you know, it, it might seem that if a if a river dries up a few thousand miles away from where you live. It's, it's not great, but it, it might seem like it doesn't have a, a massive impact on your everyday life. But, um, again, this is my pitch as to, to why it absolutely does and why we should all um, not just care about it, but, but you know, really um, really take action on it. So it was a it was a journey of discovery for me. Um, it was a book that I've been thinking about really since I first came to Iraq, uh, twenty. I first came in 2016, so I started thinking about it maybe 2018. It took over two years to put the journey together. Um, The journey itself was three months long, um, from source to sea, which was around about 1,200 miles of river travel through Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, with a a changing team, but but mostly a team of five. It was important to me that we had a team that had a mixture of um, local and international contributors each with a specialization or you know a reason to be there I very much wanted to see the river through the eyes of people who had a a deeper connection to it um so I made sure in Turkey to have Turkish and Kurdish colleagues um, in Syria to have the same and and in Iraq to travel with young water activists and environmentalists so that of course it's me writing the book it's it's my it's always going to be my interpretation but but I, I really wanted to to tell the story of the river you know through those who live on its banks and through those who long after i've gone will will be forever you know wed to this river and to its fate um and that was my attempt to to um you know de de, de-, de-, de- decentralize myself from the narrative as much as possible um so you know i thought a lot about what travel riding means in this day and age for for a white bloke from Ireland to turn up somewhere far away and and write about something. Um, so this is my attempt at, at trying to get some equilibrium on that. Uh, and and then it's taken a couple of years to write it. So it's been a it's it's not been a significant part of my life, which is never how it's meant to be. But it's often how these things work out.
2: Yeah. And, you know, you, you raise some fascinating points in there. Some are logistical, which I'm interested in, and some are more kind of ethical or moral. And how much, and I ask this question wholly with kindness, um, how much of this was a journey of self? How much were you wanting to learn about this place versus already knowing a lot about it and wanting to communicate that or wanting to learn about it and then communicate it?
1: I think it was... Um... It was never intended as a journey of self. I think one of the um, few but valuable joys of getting older is that um, you know I I'm I definitely losing my endurance and my fitness and my enthusiasm and my hair and you know all of these things that we we worry about as we we get older. But um, I I do think I having now live this life as a writer and as a traveler for um 12 or 13 years i i spent a lot of my youth on those journeys of self and i'm very grateful for them and, and and recognize how privileged i was to be able to go and do those and to discover the world and learn about my own interests and capabilities and to get to this point where i feel like um i understand myself and Uh, what I can do and what I'm interested in doing, what feels meaningful to do and what I can offer. Um, And that was one of the reasons why I ended up living in Iraq. When I first came here in 2016 to the Kurdistan region in the north, it was never the intention that I would end up moving here. I was perpetually on the move. I had a a base in London. I'd lived in a few other places briefly, but but I Mm -hmm. liked moving. I liked traveling And, and I suppose... What I hadn't acknowledged was that at that point, after six or seven years of that sort of lifestyle, there was part of me that was yearning to put down some roots somewhere and and have some more of a base. I'm sure some people can be nomadic like that for their whole lives, but but I can't. And, and I think it, in general we're, we're not designed for that. Um, you know, the, the Tigris River tells us that it shows how people came from nomadic, um, you know, cave dwelling lifestyles and and came together for various reasons. We we, we like to be in communities. Um, and so I find myself being very attracted to this country and to the mountains in the north where I've been developing a hiking trail and creating a wonderful group of friends and community here and, and making a life here. Um, and uh, as part of that, when you make a life somewhere very different from the place that you're from, you get a really wonderful outside perspective. You... you Sometimes see things, um you know, many ways in, in an untainted way. You 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 uh, you get that wonderful. You don't take things for granted as much. Maybe um you know. I certainly know people who go to Ireland seem to enjoy it and 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 see its beauty much easier than I do these days because I'm, I'm from there, even though I live around early So I I I've had all of that, but I, I also the longer I lived here, the more I wanted to. Um, to contribute something meaningful about this place that I was living in. So it was the, the journey was my uh, attempt to certainly with self-interest to understand more about the river and, and the people who lived along it. Um, but also to, to create a document of that and, um, and offer that out. And it hadn't been done before. There, there isn't a, a journey along the Tigris that's been documented in this way there's been very little written about the Tigris um no one's that I could find has traveled down the country uh, down the river from source to sea since you know the, the autumn year at least um so it felt like a, a novel thing to do and of course I knew along the way I would learn a lot about myself as with the team and everything else but the, the ambition was certainly to um to create a, a as comprehensive a as I could a, a slice of life of the Tigris in
2: in um, the 21st century. And how important was um, <clears throat> full immersion to you? I mean, I've heard about journeys like this in a way before, you know, travelling the length of a river, where actually what people do is they hire a Land Rover and they drive the 15 kilometres down to a settlement and then they drive to the cave and then they consider that a journey down a river. That isn't what you did is there a reason for that?
1: I think the reason is that we we do what we're either best at or most familiar with, um, depending on which way you look at it. And I, I've always been a journeyer. I, I've always enjoyed the the concept of a journey. I I find that um, I like the the narrative of a journey. I feel like the easiest way to tell the story of a river is to. To follow its own story, um, to to see where it's born, to see the the twists and turns and arcs of its life, and to to finish with its conclusion, um, and and certainly with the ambition of writing a book, that's that's a very simple and and um, you know there's a lot of synchronicity with with uh, writing and that um, it was a little bit different from some of the journeys I've done in the past, in that previously I was always very interested in moving as, you know, as, as slow as, um, was clever or, you know, feasibly possible as in using human power, walking, cycling, kayaking, um, feeling very connected with the place that I was traveling through, moving at the, the natural speed of the, the the landscape, um, allowing myself to kind of fall into step in conversation with people. So, so most of my journeys have been primarily on foot, but um, almost all by human power, and this one wasn't like that there was a, a there was an idea to do that to begin with, but this is not a an easy place necessarily to paddle down a river um so instead we traveled on a series of local boats. um The idea was in each from the source to the sea to find local um boat owners and hire them and their vessel and move downstream for a day or two or three until the next person with a boat and move into that and that would be our method of transportation but it would also that would be our guide and our um you know insight our our person in the local community with um, information and connections and and so on so you know in that sense it was a little bit different and a little bit more um a little bit more difficult to plan from a distance but but also uh, a little bit more freeing in some ways to
2: and I assume when you say vessels, you don't mean you know you've got your own private walnut cabin and you're popping up for dinner three times a day.
1: Sadly, not. I was hoping for that at some point, but it, it never quite never quite worked out like that. No, we had a, we had a huge variety of vessels from from um, you know very very simple rafts in in the north in Turkey, which they call kiliks, which have been really used since. Know, they, they, they turn up in these Assyrian wall friezes that you now see in the British Museum, but which were, of course, originally in the, the palaces of the Assyrian kings um, three, four, five thousand years ago. Um, and these are these are, are simple rafts, often four or five meters square, um, with initially it would have been goat skins um, underneath, tied up for buoyancy. And they can be built very simply. They're used to transport goods downstream, and then they would they would take goods from the north down to the big cities like Diyarbakir and Mosul, and even down as far as Baghdad and Basra. And then they'd just be um, the timber would be broken up and strapped onto animals and um, ridden back up the river to do it all again. So we there's still some more modern day versions of Kellex in use where it's, it's, oil drums for buoyancy instead of goat skins and um, sometimes iron instead of wood. But we use those, we, we use a lot of, uh, you know, small um, low horsepower uh, motorboats. Um, uh, we used a couple of times uh, in, in Turkey, particularly where there was more touristy areas where the river's been dammed and you have these big lakes kind of, Tourist cruiser boats, um, which were kind of fun and and strange. That was the closest we got to Walnut Cabin. Um, <laughs> and then even, even down in the south in the marshes, you know, close to the close to the end of the river, the um, the where the two where the Tigris and Euphrates come together, there's this huge area of marshlands um, <clears throat> which uh, which stretch out across a, a vast area. Um, Area of the southern part of Iraq, and uh, there we use these traditional boats again, like the they call them ashuf and tarada, which are you know long, very narrow um, uh, um, boats with these kind of big high prows that are that you you either pull or paddle along, and um, so the variety of that was in itself was was fascinating. One of the things I wanted to do was was look at what how much of this heritage of the of um, these vessels had survived to this day and age
2: yeah and you know i'm obviously just racking through a few things before we get into the actual detail of it just to kind of try and paint a picture for myself as well as everyone else where does this journey actually take you um in overview
1: yeah it's a good question so um in the southeast of turkey in the the Taurus mountains um there is a <clears throat> there is the source of the river. There's two sources of the Tigris. One is by a lake called Hazar, and the other is in a a series of caves in the middle of the mountains. Um, and these caves, um, I started an the eastern source because this is where the the Assyrians three thousand years ago decided they they journeyed upstream and found this um, and, and carved their you know glorifications of the king into the into the rock above the water and their cuneiform writing and um it's a it's a it's a very beautiful place there's a a cuneiform phrase that's identified with um these kind of series of openings that translates roughly to to um divine roads of the earth and you know the idea is that when you have these series of caves and and the starting point of a a river such as this that moves through it, it it's a it's kind of a gateway to the underworld and a place where you know that membrane between this world and the next is a little bit thinner so it's a it's a an auspicious place to start, let's say. But from there, the river runs um, down to a city called Diyarbakir, which is um, one of the biggest cities in southeast Turkey, a predominantly Kurdish population, um, historically very important as a, a centre of trade and centre of silk production and so on. Um, and then the river runs through the mountains and eventually pops out um, in a town called Jizre in Turkey, which is right on the Syrian border. It roughly, it, sorry, it, it briefly touches the northeastern corner of Syria. Um, so we, we, we travelled in Syria along the river for a couple of days. And then the river kind of straightens up a little bit and starts to shoot um, in, a, in a southeasterly direction down towards the city of Mosul um, in northwestern Iraq. And from Mosul, uh, it carries on down through the, the heartland of, of Iraq, through cities like Samara, where there's um, a famous and beautiful mosque called Malwiya, through to which was Saddam Hussein's hometown, but which has also got a deep history of its own. And then finally to Baghdad. The Tigris is the great river of Baghdad. It, it runs. Through the middle of the city and, and divides the city into, um, and then it it goes on a few little meanders um, to some other cities uh, in the southeast, but primarily heading towards the marshes, um, and that's vast area close to the border with Iran, and finally down to a place called Kurna, which is where the Euphrates joins it, and eventually to Basra. Um, it also runs directly through Basra and out to the Gulf. Um, as, as part of this kind of super of rivers called the Chahar Arab, where the the Euphrates is joined, but also the Karun coming in from Iran, and that whole journey is just under twelve hundred miles. Um, so there's, you know, even just in, the, in that brief description, there, there, a lot of those cities are are, are great central nodal points of um, not just ancient empires, but of of uh, you know important historical trade routes and um and also of course some of the contemporary ideas we have about them with um with the wars
2: yeah and i'm going to deliberately you know prepare your qi alarm but i'm going to ask the obvious questions um given the names of the cities and the places that you've just listed how dangerous is this journey
1: How dangerous is this journey? Uh, I wouldn't recommend someone to do it. um, Put it that way. It was Iraq. I think is is not a dangerous country. Um, You know, I spent much of the last four years of my life travelling throughout this country. Um, I very rarely felt in any sort of danger. It's an incredibly kind and hospitable place. The culture is one of a welcoming of strangers. Um, In that sense, I think it's. It's deeply unfair and, and misunderstood um, that it has this reputation of uh, being dangerous. But there is, of course, um, a lot of division, uh, um, a lot of the legacy of uh, these past conflicts. And traveling along this river brought us into um, into contact with with um, you know some of the, the the harder edges of that. Let's say so. This journey was, in the end. More challenging in the safety and security aspect than I might have expected, um, and and that's because we you know we we were we were doing this rather arbitrary thing of traveling down a river, and 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 one of the things I discovered is that the 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 um, tragedies that have befallen this region in the last fifty to hundred years have meant that the river is no longer used as a as a continuous um connection or, or highway of, of transportation. Um, it is segmented and fragmented and, and different parts are controlled by different groups. Um, and you know, I can go into the specifics of that if you like, but it, you know, essentially the overview would be to say that um there are Turkey is is one thing um the 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 river was um pretty tightly controlled in Turkey. The Turkish state are relatively wary of Anyone, particularly journalists, looking at um, issues related to water at the minute, one of the one of the 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 kind of headlines of the Tigris is that um, the water that is flowing downstream is increasingly being reduced and being um, cut and held back by Turkish dams at the headwaters. Um, So, in the in the absence of effective Multilateral water sharing agreements. Turkey is um, damming and storing more water than it should, and, and leaving Syria and Iraq um, to, to survive with a lot, uh, a lot less than was um, prevalent in the past and, and is expected. So, you know, for that reason, in Turkey it was tricky in certain areas. Syria was impossible to get on the water at all because the water is the international border between Syria and Turkey. Um, and the Turkish border guards will shoot anyone who goes near the water. Um, So that was quite uh, clear, at least, that we shouldn't attempt to do that. So instead, we traveled along the the bank. Um, And in Iraq, it changes greatly. So, you know, in the north, um, the northern part of Iraq was all, uh, you know, the first few hundred miles of travel there were all under under the control, under the occupation of, ISIS um, from you know 2013, uh, 14 through until 2016, um, 17. So you know that, that's that's the, the the predominant impression that one has traveling there is of a place still recovering from total devastation because of that. And so there are still remnants of, of ISIS, very few, but but real enough that they um, are there and the Iraqi military are very concerned about that there are sometimes the the um those uh you know remaining um small groups of of jihadists have been living on islands in the middle of the tigris um so we we had to be very careful We had a um military convoy um alongside us for certain parts of the river but there's also um you know, since, particularly since 2003 and the American-led invasion of Iraq, there's been a total fragmentation of power and control inside the country. And so the the, the federal government and, and the military attached to that do not have um, control over the, the whole country. There are a, a large number of militia groups which um, initially started uh, as um, armed groups to combat ISIS and remove ISIS, but have since um, consolidated their power and taken control and, and, and they do not operate under the same leadership as the the federal military. So all is to say in, in, at its worst, every mile or half mile, the river was controlled by a different group, sometimes, um, federal army, sometimes one of these militia groups, sometimes, uh, you know, a a different militia group, um, under a, a different, um, leadership um and then back to the army and then and and so we'd have to get permissions from each of those we'd have to be wary of um you know any remaining militants that might be out there and and i i i i find that was a surprise to me I, i i didn't expect this journey to be simple but it it did show me just how fragmented um iraq has become and it was, that was very much in opposition to what I'd experienced as a traveler over the last four years. And, um, you know, again, I think these, these fundamentals of, uh, of humanity are still very much present there. But um, the, the, there's a real vacuum of power and, and, and leadership in the country. And it, traveling down a river shows that in, in all of its worst lights.
2: Yeah, and I, I haven't looked, and maybe you know the answer, but I mean, I'm sure you do, but if you were to look at the FCO advice for travelling to Iraq or the border of Syria, etc., I'm sure it would say don't go right now. When then obviously... Yeah. Yeah, and you've had this experience of living in a country for four years where you've found it to be welcoming, it's become your home, you are friends with many people in that region and that country. And again, I ask this with kindness and being deliberately slightly difficult, but... To what, exp- to what extent do you think your experience of living there almost like lulled you into a false sense of security for what would follow as you travelled?
1: I think the, the experience that you have of, or that I've had, let's say, of um, living you know, in the Kurdish region in the north, but regularly travelling to Mosul and Baghdad and Basra and the marshes and these other places is a very different one because those places... Um, have got a great deal of security around them now. um They are used to having visitors, of uh, internationals, passing through, whether those are diplomats or humanitarians or even just t- tourists. Um, and you know, the, the, the uh, there's a normalisation of of life and interaction that's happening there. That's you know able to hark back to, to all of these things that I think are more fundamental to people here. Um, but yeah, I, I was I was curious about what would happen if I if I tried to do a journey like this, you know, through um, some of the more
0: challenging strata of of um, what Iraq has been
1: through, and it was pretty surprising to me. But you know, also maybe not so surprising to my Iraqi colleagues who were with me on the journey to to see that it was so hard and so complicated and, and convoluted and um, you know bureaucratic. Uh, as well a lot of it was a bureaucratic
2: hassle as much as it was a safety risk and do you look back on it i mean i was going to say maybe you just tell me the story but you've written a book so there's enough there for at least eight hours of conversation but um do you i guess what i'm interested in do you look back on this as a positive experience you know, everything you've talked about so far, I mean, I've deliberately thrown these questions at you, but there's some negativity to it. There's some surprise to it. There's the armed escort. Was it a positive experience?
1: It's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I feel, you know, deeply privileged to live in Iraq. There, there's so much on this journey that we haven't talked about and, and which we may, um, <clears throat> which is the. The archaeological sites, the historical sites. You know the 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 Malwia snail, snail shell minaret in the city of Samarra um, from the 9th century, which is one of the most stunning pieces of architecture I've ever seen in in real life. Um, the the city of Ashur, the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and um, also on the banks of the Tigris from five thousand years ago, and the the ziggurat there that was once you know inlaid with crystal and lead. Um, the the various other parts of the um, of the, the Assyrian Babylonian Akkadian
0: Sumerians that dot the river plus the the many thousands of years that came between
1: then and now and plus all of these you know the mountains in the north the um, the, the marshes in the south the, the kind of great empty um, plains in the middle where where this river just creates all this life along it it's it's deeply beautiful it's deeply moving and meaningful. <clears throat> um but I did I did leave this journey feeling um you know heartbroken and and angry for on behalf of of those who 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 live along the river and, and who live in these countries because they've just been perpetually let down by their own governments by the international community um they've been let down they've been ignored they've been um invaded they've you know they've 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 just gone through an unimaginable toil and um and trauma and and so you know writing this book and doing this journey was um certainly the most you know if I, if I may say for for me personally the most meaningful thing I've ever done um it it feels like that to me it's had the greatest impact on my life of anything I've done by by a huge by a huge distance um and and so I feel so fortunate to have been able to do that because I, I, it is not easy. It's it's also one the most difficult thing I've ever done is to plan and you know I didn't do it alone, with, but I, I, I say that on behalf of our team. Um, but as I as I look back on it, it was a really hard experience. It was one in which all of those beautiful things I described um, are overlaid and exist in parallel with you know all of these hardships too and. And as I was writing the book, I was I was constantly looking for hope. You know, where is the hope for the future of these countries and for the the thirty five million people who live in the watershed of the Tigris? And there is hope there because there always is. Um, there is hope in those things that uh, I was talking about the the humanity um, that you find that that kind of thousands of years of um, of, of looking after one another. The hope comes in the fact that this is not just a place of conflict, but it's a place where historically people were brought together. You know, it's 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 uh, it's not quite the center of the world, but it can feel like it. Trade routes converged in this place; people came to be together there, and, and so you can't rule out all of that. Um, I travelled with you know these two amazing young Iraqi activists and, and environmentalists, Hani Ibrahim and Salman Charallah. Um, the, for the entirety of the the journey through Iraq, um, and they've dedicated their whole lives to trying to create a better future for their country and for their their country folk. So, um, you know, there there are people who are working really hard to change things, um, but there there is also terrible corruption, um, inept governance. Uh, you know. Um, huge geopolitical failures um and uh and this series of of um you know wars from the Iran Iraq war and the Gulf war and the sanctions that followed and the invasion in 2003 and the sectarian conflict that followed that and al qaeda and isis and you know you come to the present day and I'm 36 and um iraqis who are my age have have never lived through anything other than, um, than war, they've, they've never known stability. Um, so it's, it's a very complicated question to answer, you know. Personally, I, I can take away a huge amount from it of just seeing that this is some of the, like I said, in, in Malwia and in um, Ashur and some of these other sites, you know, even, even what was not destroyed in Mosul, some of those beautiful architecture, some of those beautiful examples of what humans are capable of creating. Um, uh, these exist in Iraq. These exist alongside the river, and they exist because of the river. Um, but you know, as a, as humans, we've also really screwed it up, um, and and we're in danger of of screwing it up even more. And you can't, I think, as a, as um my Iraqi colleagues find and as I find you can't travel through this country without just feeling um you know heartbroken and angry that that um that the people who live there have have never had a a a fair shot at uh, a a simple functioning lifestyle and country
2: yeah and you spoke towards the start and obviously just then about the people that you chose to travel with and I think that's one of the things that separates this journey from others that I've heard of and you know, and I mean, all power to you for it. By the way, I think it's a very um, wise and progressive thing to be doing, rather than going on your big, grand, white male adventure. Um, but who were you travelling with, and how were they selected?
1: So there was a there was three internationals: um, myself and Emily Garthwaite, uh, and were the the two instigators of the journey. Emily is a, a wonderful, talented photojournalist, um, also living in Iraq for a number of years. And um, the idea was that she was interested in understanding the same things I was and would visually document the river. And I would write about it. And, <clears throat> and to, together we would, uh, you know, lead those conversations when we when we wanted to. And we also brought a filmmaker called Claudio von Planter, um, who has you know, worked on a lot of great shows, worked in Iraq and Kurdistan for 20 years, but also filmed Long Way Round with Hugh McGregor and Charlie Borman, which um, I think is his, probably his claim to fame, because I think that's why most people know him. He, he says it's because he was the first guy to interview Osama bin Laden. But I think both are, are pretty good. Uh, <laughs> both are pretty good things to have on the CV. Um, so, you know, Claudio, Emily and I were the, the international contingent and then in Turkey, we travelled with a translator and journalist called um, Angel, who has been facilitating um, other journalists and storytellers in, in Southeast Turkey for, you know, most of her professional career is from um, close to Diyarbakir and, and understands both the context and, and the, the the place and people very well. Um, and speaks multiple languages and dialects. Um, and was very interested in being part of a journey that looked beyond, you know, the, the, the politics and um, and more divisive stuff that she often has to cover. Um, and also a, a river expert and, I suppose, environmentalist activist called Bishar, who's, um, who's been at the forefront of campaigns to protect the waterways inside Turkey. Um, Syria, we, we had a, a couple of different people um, join, um, Including some some friends from Erbil, where I live, but you know that was just a couple of days of the, the trip, um, and then the the rest in Iraq were, were um, Salman and Hannah, uh, and I think one of the one of the benefits of having been living in Erbil and and uh, traveling throughout Iraq for a couple of years prior to this, and also having visited Southeast Turkey and, and being you know um, aware of who was here and who was doing work here. Um, once it became clear that we were going to attempt this journey it was very obvious the sort of people that we should work with and it would just it wouldn't have felt right to do it any other way than to include people like this on the journey and and um, you know whenever there was an opportunity to we tried to bring in anyone else who had a um, an expertise in the river so there's a guy called Nabil Musa who lives up here in the north of Iraq who's a a, a waterkeeper for the region, uh, which is you know a kind of international designation of someone who looks after the waterways. He came and joined us for a while, um, so we sought out that expertise. And um, you know, like I said, it's it, the river belongs to the people who live on it, and I'm very happy to be a, a storyteller as part of that. But um, you know, often I would ask questions to the people that we met um, with Selma and Rohanna translating. And then they would ask their own questions and, um, and I would come away with, you know, this kind of collected, uh, collected set of, um, notes from, from the interview. And and when I came to write the book, I was able to put that together. So I would also get a sense of what does a, what does a 30 something year old Iraqi think of the tigers in this day and age, not just what do I think?
2: Yeah. And how, I mean, you've you've just sort of well, more than hinted at it there, but outside of the hard skills like river guiding, logistics, fixing, language, what did those people bring to your experience, or how did their influence change your experience?
1: Well, I mean, one of the one of the clearest ways, and one of the reasons that Emily and I decided um, initially to pursue this project was that we felt. Um, I've lived and travelled and worked in the Middle East for quite a long time now, as so a she, uh, and I always get a very different um, experience here as a man. Um, and she has a different but but generally more um, more holistic experience than I do as a woman, because she's able to access those women's spaces, but also often the men's spaces too. So it was important to us that we had a team that wasn't just... Um, there wasn't too big and, and kind of bloated, but um, quite small and, and as lithe as it could be. But it had um, people from these different countries, as I said, but also it had that gender split too. So <clears throat> um, Emily and Angel in Turkey and, and Emily and Hannah in Iraq were able to um, go off together and spend an evening. We, we every night we tried to stay in um, homes alongside the river. And so they were able to go and spend the evenings with, um, the women of the, the house of the village and, um, do their interviews, have their conversations and come back and we would all compare notes the next day and um, collect things. So, you know, that definitely helped. But I think also, um, there, there was, there's so much that you can just never know if you're not from a place, you can, you know, you can research it to the nth degree, um, and you can sort of figure out what the, the key waypoints are along the river, um, historically or geographically or culturally or linguistically or whatever. But um, someone who's grown up there their whole lives, you know, Salman's originally from the south of Iraq but spent most of his life in Baghdad. Um, Hannah was the same, um, spent most of her life in Baghdad and then moved to the north. You know, People like that know things and have an insight in terms of how they might ask questions or frame things that I just never could. Um, And they have a a deep inherent interest in the river. Um, So, you know, although one of their functions was to translate, um, it was, it was never, it would never work to have someone who was just translating out of, uh, you know, as, as a role, it had to be someone who um, really wanted to do it. So although the, the concept was mine and, and, Emily's the only way this worked was if everyone bought into it and considered it as a a joint enterprise along a river
2: yeah so I think a a logical place to go with this is to actually just get you to tell me the story of the river and the journey almost you know, start at the start and let's see where we get to and if I have any questions I'll pop them in but otherwise I'll sit back and enjoy sure
1: well it's a it um, the, the journey starts in a, in, a, in a really remarkable place in these, these series of caves and, um, and small streams and rivers that I, I described were, were the, the springs that feed the source of the tigers come from. Uh, and quite quickly, we hired some local boats in that area. Uh, we were able to drink directly from the source. We were able to float in one of these rafts through this long natural tunnel um, and I by these you know Syrian carvings in the rock um, but quite quickly we ran into the sort of challenges that would be um, prevalent throughout the rest of the journey particularly after about 10 miles we were we had to come off the river because the um, the Turkish military would not allow anyone to be on the next stretch um, so we had to skip a section. I think in total we probably, I worked out um, from my from the data I gathered that we were on the river about 70% of the time and 30% involved detouring around problematic sections. So, um, you know, it's still, I think 70% is, is pretty remarkable that we managed it, but 30% is also a lot not to do and it, it kind of shows um, how challenging certain sections are. But so that was the first time we encountered that and that was to become a, a feature and the second thing we encountered was that within 30 or 40 miles of following this this very nascent um fledgling river we ran into an area where the water began to slacken and broaden and um and turn into the the lake that was formed behind a or the reservoir that was formed behind a dam <clears throat> um and uh this we we Traveled with someone whose original village had been flooded by by that dam. You know, I lived at a new purpose built village on the top, and um, that was the first of a, a series of interviews we did um, of a sense of lost heritage and um, changing landscape, and um, you know, artificial man made attempts at controlling um, the water. And there's there's a, a lot of tension in that part of Turkey between the, the predominantly Kurdish. Population, ethnically Kurdish population and the, the central Turkish state and um, the, there's a sense among the Kurds that we traveled with and alongside that a lot of these, um, a lot of the dams uh, have been created with a, a clear function of um, altering the, the, the natural course of, of Kurdish life of in places like a town called Hasankeyf, of, of flooding sites important to uh, Kurdish heritage as well as global heritage, um, but also of of uh, disrupting you know natu- uh, traditional migration paths that shepherds would have used, and so on, as as a way to control, to further control um, a Kurdish population. Um, and there's you know mm-hmm. listeners may or may not know that, that, that there's been a, a, an ongoing tension between um, the the parts of the Kurdish majority population there and, and the Turkish state, which, um, you know, turn into a, a militant um, battle with a, a group, pr- primarily the PKK, um, who initially were a separatist organisation who wanted to create a separate state um, and are no longer separatist, but are still active there and, and in northern Iraq as well. So it's it's also a place that um, has, where the local population have lived alongside conflict and which is highly militarised. And, and that was part of the reason why we were, not able to travel alongside the river so much but alongside that um you know you have firstly just these, these beautiful mountains um you have uh you have a lot of um remnants of the different empires of of the past going back as far as the Assyrians um a lot of my journey a lot of the journey of the Tigris is is kind of through the, the story of the Assyrians um who were you know at least in in 700-600 BC, the, the, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, um, with their capital at, at that point in Nineveh, which is now modern-day Mosul, but originally in Asherah, which is further down the Tigris to the south. And and so they used the river as a, as a way to, um, you know, as one of their arteries of control and came up as far as, uh, you know, this kind of lands um, in in uh, the mountains in what's now Southeast Turkey. So you have that, but of course, you know, the, the Romans, the Greeks, um, uh, everyone else, um, before and since had, um, been through and and created some sort of legacy there. And so we would float through these, these towns and cities that, um, showed all the markings of that and which in Turkey are, are largely really well preserved, um, The centre of all of that is the city of Diyarbakir, which is is beautiful and is built right on, kind of pressing into the river itself um, and is a real centre of of, uh, contemporary Kurdish life as well. Um, And uh, the mountains in Southeast Turkey are also um, a place where a lot of the um, some of the earliest adopters of Christianity lived as well. So we, there's a number of monasteries you know, built into the rock around the river, which we were able to visit. And, you know, there's now, of, of those original Syriac, predominantly Syriac communities, there's maybe only a uh, two to 5,000 um, adherents left. But you still find these, you know, monasteries from the 4th the and 5th centuries A.D., um, built into the rock. So, so really from the earliest points of, of the Christian faith. Um, Syria is fascinating. You know, the whole of northeast Syria has become a really uh, interesting place, but also, of course, a very sad place since the, the Syrian civil war. It's Northeast Syria is now under the control of a, of an, a self-appointed autonomous administration, a Kurdish administration. Um, so it's possible to travel there from the Kurdistan region of Iraq, across the river and I think that was also indicative of um, the, t- the style of this journey. When we reached the, the end of the river in Turkey, we stood by by the border with Syria looking across the river and across a, a large concrete border wall to this um, old bridge called the Zangid Bridge, this, this kind of beautiful remaining arch of a 12th century bridge that... Um, the various people, including the you know the orientalist explorer Gertrude Bell, had taken a, a beautiful picture of in 1917 um, when the tiger still ran under it, uh, and so you can see it. It's it's a it's a couple hundred meters away, but the only way to get there because it's in Syria and we were in Turkey is to travel an hour or more in the wrong direction to the Turkish Iraqi border, cross that border into Iraq, then cross you know in a couple hours back on the Iraqi Kurdish side to the river Tigris, to the crossing point, apply for permission in advance, have it all signed off by the um, administration in northeast Syria, cross on a, um, on, a Syria, on a ponton bridge over the Tigris, and then drive back up um, alongside the river to this bridge. It took us about two and a half days to do that. You know, and If you were to walk in a straight line, you'd be able to do it in... 10 minutes
2: yeah um but just in my some of my own experiences of traveling in these sorts of parts of the world pre-approved permission is not always a guarantee of access right did was that ever an issue for you
1: yeah yeah i mean all the time um actually syria was one place it wasn't the the syrian administration are, are pretty welcoming of journalists because they're they're trying to um convince you know the world of of their um of the validity of their control so so they're pretty happy for any press they can get um you know you still have to have all the correct paperwork but um turkey was tricky claudio was always really frustrated in turkey because it was really hard to film anything um he wasn't allowed his drone which made him very upset uh and iraq we you know as part of our preparation we 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 spent that's part of a couple of years trying to build the right connections and we eventually did we got a very high level of access um which which did help us at least in the federally controlled areas um but you know we still were constantly running into uh, challenges and, and and part of it, the issue is um whilst we felt our journey was a uh, one that was important to make if uh if a, a, a military official is telling you that you can't go to a certain place because there might be you know a threat from jihadists from ISIS, um, you can't really argue. And uh, the last thing we wanted to do was put anyone in jeopardy ourselves or any of the soldiers with us or, or anything like that. But we also got a sense sometimes that that was just used as an excuse because we were kind of a, a pain in people's arse. You know, we were just, um, they were trying to get on with their you know, important jobs and we were this bunch of weirdos traveling down a river. So it was sometimes hard to know when to push back on things and sometimes when to just say, Yeah, that seems like a legitimate reason not to be there.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb dot com slash host.
1: Um. So to, to spend a couple of days in Northeast Syria was great, and then you know the city of Mosul is such a a beautiful, fascinating place. It's um it's it's been so devastated by ISIS. Um, the old city, which was the the central part of it was 60 to 80 percent destroyed um still a lot of it is um rubble and, and in ruins but it's a uh, it's a city that was rich in culture before and, and and that's bouncing back really quickly there's these huge kind of flagship projects to rehabilitate um you know this kind of iconic mosque and minaret in the in and some of the churches in the center but also these really incredible grassroots cultural projects like theatre groups and heritage houses and um, women-run uh, food delivery services and, you know, musicians and an orchestra. And the fact that things like this can come back within a few years of, you know, quite literally hell on earth um, is is nothing short of, of remarkable. And, and to be a witness to that is is incredible. And I think this is, you know, a friend of mine from Mosul, Said this to me, and it, it kind of always stuck with me. He was—he always got so frustrated that that um, international media coverage of Iraq focused on um, the fallout from ISIS and, and the fact that this is what humans were capable of, and um, that we could do this to one another, and that it could happen in a place like Iraq, uh, and that that had become a defining feature of his city and of his country. And he kind of always said, "I mean, look." That's one part of it for sure, but but the other part of it is that wherever you are from in the world, whatever your background, whatever you've done, um, you can come here and someone will, within seconds, bring you into their home, um, invite you for tea, invite you to stay, and extend to you a meaningful, warm and and you know completely um, genuine, uh, all-encompassing sense of, of hospitality and of looking after you and, and he said he was always frustrated that that never got understood that um to him that was one of the key character traits of um Iraqis and of Muslawis and um, things like that get forgotten about when there's such a, a present layer of um devastation on the place um so Mosul was was beautiful and uh, and the river, the, the the river between Mosul and Baghdad is the trickiest section. That was where we had a lot of the military support. Um, we came down through the cities like uh, like Tikrit, where Saddam Hussein was from, where his you know vast complex of palaces is still there, but now mostly lying in ruins. Um, <clears throat> we met. We heard. I mean, it was it was it was a pretty traumatic experience, honestly, for us as well, just travelling through there. It, in if if i may say that of course it's for people who live there it's it's um you know many factors higher than that but but hearing these stories every single day of what people have lived through not just in the last five to ten years but before that is it really takes a toll on you but you know even within that there's always these these stories that that remind you of um of the other side of it I, i think the one of the most meaningful to me was the story of a woman called Uncusai in a, in a village just outside Tikrit, who um, uh, there was, when ISIS were kind of sweeping across the country and um, had captured this military training base at a place called Spiker and, and carried out this horrendous massacre of young um, Shia Muslim recruits, um, those who had escaped it had fled upriver, Um being chased by ISIS, and and they were on one side, and her her village of Al was on the other side, and she saw these young terrified men who'd just seen their friends being killed and knew that knew what was going to happen to them. She saw them arriving in their, you know, in, in small groups of two or three or five or ten, and so she um, she began bringing them across the river. She sent her son in a boat. And she eventually got some other people from the village to. Come out and find some guns and provide some covering fire and um and she she sweep these people across the river uh into her home and clothe them and feed them and hide them and provide protection for them and she saved somewhere between fifty and eighty lives by doing that um and there's there's no need for her to do that there was she was also of course you know um. I think a lot of Iraqis get frustrated that so much uh, emphasis is put on the sectarian divide too, because that's a relatively recent thing since 2003. But, you know, she was Sunni, they were Shia. Um, but, um, you know, of course none of that matters when it comes to saving lives. life. So to, to sit with someone, you know, under a tree outside her home and, and hear this story of just a few years ago of of her putting her life at risk and her family putting their lives at risk to save all of these young men is a, a very moving experience and I think something that deserves to be remembered and acknowledged as much as, um, as much as any of the, 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 um, you know, tragedies and other devastations of, of the war. Um, and the river, of course, you know, the, the, these are, these are, these is all part of the fabric of the story of the river. At that point, it was, you know, quite literally a binder, bindery between life and death for these young men. Um, and, and she, you know, provided this kind of bridge of of safety and security, um, uh, and then in the south, the, the river is a little bit simpler to travel because between Baghdad and and the Gulf, it's you know it's it's um, it's predominantly Shia, so so there's it hadn't been controlled by ISIS. It's it's a little bit simpler in terms of um, you know, any of those divisions. Um, And, uh, there's, there's, again, very, uh, numerous sites of, of fascinating, um, heritage along its banks. Um, you know, the, the ruins of a, an archway in a city called Takasra, which was a, you know, kind of third to sixth century capital of the Persian empire, um, which is still there. So much of this is unexcavated, um, like the, the, the city of Ashur that I keep talking about, um. It's uh, the the custodian of it, the man who looks after it and, and works for the, the State Board of Heritage and Antiquities there, reckons that, you know, 90% of the site has never been excavated and all of these graves of the Assyrian kings are unexcavated. And um, you can just imagine what lies beneath the earth still. Uh, um, but in the south, you have the, the the major feature there is the Iraqi marshes, which the the writer Wilfred Thesiger wrote a great book about called the Marsh Arabs, which, which some listeners may know it's, uh, um, I'm sure you do. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a classic of travel writing. And, and it was really interesting going there, um, having been a great fan of Thesiger in my youth and, and now seeing him in, you know, in slightly different, through sort of a slightly different lens. He was of course a, a, a great, um, colonialist and, um, he travelled in a very, he travelled in a in a very certain time, um, and in a very certain way. He was a very unusual and eccentric man, um, but he also truly did love that area and um, felt much more at home there than he ever did at Eton, Oxford, and any of the other places he did. And one of the most enjoyable stories I've ever written, which is part of the book, which is also a magazine story I wrote, was about tracking down a man called Amara, who was Wilfred Thesiger's favorite companion and boatman in the Marsh Arabs book, um, who's now in his, well, he was, he was in his early 80s at that point, living in Baghdad. And so we went to find Amara and um, over the course of a year to um, have him tell his story and, and have him tell, he's mentioned constantly throughout the Marsh Arabs as, as the guy who leads Thesiger um, around and... Uh, we learn a lot of his life through that. But then in, in 1958, Amara was, uh, Thesiger was left Iraq and was never able to come back because of the, the coup. Um, and so there's all of these years of Amara's life that, um, you know, had never been written about since. So, so to be able to sit with him and hear his story of continuing life in the marshes, eventually moving around the country, ending up in Baghdad, um, what he thought of this strange englishman who turned up in a three-piece tweed suit um but spoke perfect iraqi arabic and you know had a, a box of medical supplies and wanted to travel through the marshes um no that really that's that's one of the most special things I've, I've ever been able to do in my life um and the marshes now is the and drain the marshes uh just before the iran-iraq war um and and completely killed the ecosystem which is is one of the the, the most unique in the Middle East. Um, and after 2003, the, de- the, the marshes were reflooded and, and some of the life has come back to them. Um, some of the, uh, the bird species have returned, some of the fish species have returned. It's never quite the same, but there's there's a group of people who are trying desperately to bring life back to them. And, and it really is a spectacular place of these reed islands and of of this culture for many thousands of years where people have lived um, in reed built. Rebuilt built huts, surviving with their water buffalo and travelling through these little channels um, on these traditional boats.
2: Does it seem recoverable? Honest answer. I...
1: Um, to a certain degree, yes. Uh, there, there's a, a wonderful non-governmental organisation called Nature Iraq, um, founded by a man called Azam al-Wash, and, and mostly run now by another man called Jasim al-Assadi in the marshes. And um, They've been leading the drive to um, to protect uh, what remains of the marshes and to, to try and increase its coverage. Uh, it is recoverable. The, the, there is still life in the marshes. There is still um, a very small but um, existing population of people living um, in in a relatively traditional manner there. There are still people who fish and who survive from water buffalo. Um but one of the biggest challenges now is the the um, the lack of water the the droughts that have happened plus the um reduced inflow on the Tigris and Euphrates from um from the dams upstream in Turkey um poor water management increased salinity uh and you know, those sort of challenges but um people like jasin and azam are are have been trying you know, for, for 20 plus years now to protect them. And, and the fact that it exists is nothing short of a miracle. And it is, it's you know, I maybe said this a few times on this podcast, but it is one of the most special places I've ever been because of that. Um, And uh, yeah, and, 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 you know, I, I think that's somewhere I would, it's, it's still not very easy to get there, but it's somewhere I would, Um, if people are listening to this with a, with an idea of, Wanting to travel, I would say the the marshes is a place to go to, and there's there is a, a, a fledgling tourism industry there too, of people will be happy to take you around and show you places. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and where the where the river comes out to the sea, Bastra. Bastra is kind of where all of the, the the worst parts of this Clyde. You know, it's it's where the, the river is polluted at every possible point. Um, the, the poor governance in the country just means that um, everything and anything is dumped into the river, usually untreated. Uh, so you have all of that arriving, you've got the salt water kind of pushing back up from the Gulf because of the reduced inflow. Um, you have uh, a, a rapidly warming climate in Basra, so that the summers now are well over 50 degrees Celsius. Um, you have a an incredibly poorly functioning um, electrical grid so that for most people, they have just a few hours of electricity each day, so no ability to run air conditioners or fans to keep them cool. Um, You have kind of all of these different militia groups vying for control. So, you know, there's there's parts of the river where it feels like, um, and at times the marshes can feel like this, where there's uh, wonderful work being done, hope for the future, and then busters where you see... geopolitical and um changing climate um collide and and you see a really harsh vision of what the future could be like if something isn't done to protect the river uh yeah that's that's quite a long um it's quite a a long description of it there but but roughly that's what happened
2: you managed to get three months into about 15 minutes so i think that's pretty good (laughs) going Where does, I mean, I, I wanted to talk to you about the environmental side of it, but you have covered that in some senses. And I'm also interested, you know, you, you've spoken a lot about the human story and how that relates to both your experience and this river. And I think there's a lot more we could cover there. But what about the landscape? And I use the word wilderness, you know, almost like very loosely. What about the bits between the places in between the, the settlements and the cities?
1: Um so, you know, in, in the 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 way that these rivers worked is that you had this in, in most of Iraq and, and what was Mesopotamia, <clears throat> you had this huge floodplain with these two rivers running through it that the 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 ground is very fertile um because of the rivers and the silt that they carried down from the mountains and then when they'd flood, you know, they spread the silt over the earth, um which would make it um, perfect for planting crops and so on, but but nobody lived there. Everyone lived in the mountains, um, or the Bedouin lived in the, the deserts and so on. Uh, and when you know twelve thousand years ago, people first came down from the mountains. They began to work with the river, start to cut canals and make these kind of tessellations of um, of drainage channels and 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 turn them into a place where you can plant crops and and where you can have animals and where you can build cities and so on Um, so all that to say that the, the the most important places along along the river became these major centers of you know power and influence and so on and then in between you would have these villages dotted along the river because that's where life came from but so often beyond that there's nothing right unless you cut a channel to bring the water from the river um, beyond or unless you happen to be on one of the tributaries of which there are you know roughly five main tributaries to the tigris um there's not much to sustain life so the places on on the river itself there are of course there are places in between the bigger places but actually the, the the river is the source of life it's it's the lifeblood of the country and so um everyone is collected along that and on the few occasions that we had to leave the river uh when we wanted to go and see for example in in southern iraq uh, a city called wasit which was once on a, a previous um previous course of the tigris so you know from from baghdad south the floodplain is so flat that um, the river's changed course a number of times over the last couple of thousand years. Um, uh, And there's this city called Wasit, which was once another major city of the time um, because the river ran it through it. And now uh, as the river changed course, it's now been left abandoned and has become desert. And so it's a pretty stark place to be. Um, But it always, every time we had reason to leave the river, it was a reminder of, you know, just how important it was as this kind of ribbon of life that ran through the place and as soon as you step away from that, you are in um, you know, you're in trouble unless you can unless you're willing to ship in or drive in um, all of the supplies that you need and this is what a lot of the, the um, pastoralists and, and farmers are finding right now is previously where there used to be some springs or wells or anything else if those dry up and you're not near the river um, there's not much left for you.
2: Yeah, how much did you? I think you said you were travelling with um, conservationists and ecologists, people like that. D- do they have any idea of what the future holds for the river?
1: Um, future is pretty stark for the river as, as we stand, uh, and that's what one of the yeah, the things I want this book to do is to to kind of be a, a call to arms of um, the fact that this some of in, in some of the the darkest predictions the the southern end of the the river may start to to dry up and no longer reach the gulf within the next 10 years um and you know we're all acutely aware of um how poorly we're doing to to reach our climate goals and and to keep within the 1.5 degrees of global warming um but it, but you feel all of this even more acutely in places like Basra. You know, it's, it's I always think that um, if it, it feels, uh, it can feel, I think this is part of the is to, to getting people to understand and buy into this idea more broadly is that if you don't really notice it, it's just a slightly warmer summer in, in London than it was before. Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't dramatically change your life. But if you live in somewhere like Basra, you're, you're already feeling it. Um, every second of every single day, and so the, so the predictions are, are pretty um, harsh for the river. But that's not to say there's there's not hope um, if things are changed. If uh, the government in Iraq, in which there is a new one right now, if they were to, for example, um, implement wide widespread changes in the agricultural systems to stop wasting so much water um, and very archaic. Uh, very okay very farming practices, um, if they were to replace a lot of the infrastructure in the country, if um, a water sharing agreement was to be signed with Turkey that released a, a more fair amount of water, um, all of these things could dramatically change the situation with the Tigris and those who live along it. Um, but I, I you know, I think it's, it's, it's at a really critical stage, as are so many parts of our planet right now, you know, we, we talk about um, we talk about points of no return and uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where we are on the Tigris. I like to think that there's still much that can be salvaged but, um, and there's lots that can be done. The, whether those things are likely to be done, who knows, but I think my purpose as a writer is to try and bring those to the fore and, and you know, highlight the work of those people I travelled with who are reporting on this every single day and how it changes.
2: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I think in some senses, you know, I've been trying to calibrate where on the journalist spectrum I sit as a podcast host and, you know, there would be a very easy avenue here for me to Disneyfy this whole thing and we could just focus on all of the wonderful positives. But I'm conscious of not doing that. And there's a question I want to ask you, which, you know, if someone's listening to this on their Sunday in an armchair, probably isn't their favourite thing. But, you know, were you disappointed by this journey in any way or not?
1: Yeah, it's it's really it's been really hard for me. I think as I, I came I was someone who, you know, grew up in a very rural part of Ireland, um, eventually, you know, got the idea that it'd be nice to see the world, traveled off on bicycles and wandering and went looking for the beautiful parts of the planet and saw them and met wonderful people and you know, find my way to where I am now through all of that, through wanting the wonderful beautiful exciting life enhancing experiences and now a lot of the work i do has that of course there's it, it lots of elements of that but you also you see a reality and and there's a, an obligation and responsibility to report that and um i do find it a little bit hard sometimes is to find the best way to communicate it um i find it hard writing the book that's why it took me you know two years to do it um because uh, this journey was in 2021 that, that we traveled down the river. So it's it, the reason it's taking me so long is trying to find a way to communicate the reality of this, but not just to, you know, depress everyone to the point at which I think if you, if you just throw too much bad news at people, they'll switch off. Um, I think you have to somehow balance it out without losing the, the, the veracity of what you're trying to say. Um, <clears throat> so your question was, did, you know, did I find this journey disappointing. Um, I didn't. Uh I I found it traumatic, honestly. It's it's taken me the best part of a couple of years personally, um, to process a lot of what I saw and heard and was part of. And um and that's never been something I've I've had to deal with before. I know journalists who work in really challenging environments do find that. But um it was really it was really hard. It was really hard for all of us. And I think all of us have uh, in in our own ways have have taken a long time to recover from that. Um, but I wouldn't say it was disappointing. It was to a certain degree, we knew what we were setting out to do, and we believed it was worth it. Um, and uh, I still believe that. and i and I also believe in the the importance of balancing every part of you know tough reality. Things are in a bad way, news with um these are the these are the the things that we're capable of as humans, and this is what we built in the past, and this is maybe what we can do again in the future if we wisen ourselves up um I think so yeah, it was it was rough
2: without um i mean <laughs> I was going to say without philosophizing, but I'm very much a um talentless armchair philosopher <laughs> it kind of just. You know, the river is... I mean, I was going to say it's a metaphor, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's more literal than that. Of You look at the civilizations that have come and gone along that river and the way that it's changed, the things it has experienced and the things it has seen, the way it's bounced back, recovered, hasn't, etc. I think we're very guilty as a species, and there's some really good books about this, about our inability to think long term. You know, we just see now, we just see the next 10 years, we just see the next 30 years... The river's been here for a really long time. Humans have lived on it, travelled down it for a very long time, and you're much more qualified to comment on this than me. But thirty years isn't much. What's going to happen to it in the future? And I mean that's slightly rhetorical. You know, I'm not asking you to guess, but I don't know. Is that a healthy way to look at it?
1: It can be. I mean, it certainly if, if it um, if it if it brings it into you know, stark relief to look at it that way. Um, then I think, yeah, it is. And 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 one of the things I think that you know, I want this, I want the book that I've written to be something that people can read to understand more about the river specifically and the history of these countries that it passes through, and the history of the people who live there and the the situation for people who live there now. But I also think um, to look at it more broadly the reason that this river is in so much trouble is because of, you know, the, the avarice and carelessness of mankind. Like we've done this to it and we've done this to it very recently. And if we don't stop doing it to it, it will dry up. And if, if we can mess that up here in the birthplace of civilization, where water management itself was pioneered, then we're capable of doing that anywhere. You know, we can mess anything up. Um, and so I think that should be a warning that we all take heed of. Uh that the reason this river matters is because mm. um because it is this custodian of all of, of of a kind of shared global heritage. But also if these things can happen here, they can and will happen elsewhere too. Um and, and the quicker we can kind of catch on to that and halt that and change our practices at a at a um whichever level we want to look at it at a policy making level or at an individual community level the quicker we do that the more likely we are to to protect and create a better planet and a more sustainable one for our for the next generations
2: yeah and this is a slight tangent but it's i think it's very relevant to this conversation and your style of travel and you know i've become increasingly involved with the Royal Geographical Society over the last year and I, big disclaimer, my views are my own. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. and I am obviously being sort of facetious or silly with this, but why is it necessary to undertake a journey like this to learn what you've learned? You know, could you not have just gone out there and found these people via local fixes, etc., interviewed them remotely, asked them questions via letter or Zoom? Why do you need to immerse yourself? And I'm going to use the, the A word, you know, it is an adventure in and of itself. It is exploration. I would absolutely argue this is exploration. Um, why is that necessary?
1: I think it's a, a, a really important question to ask, particularly to ask oneself at the outset of a journey like this, um, not just to to start, you know, wasting time, but, but to really see if it's going to achieve something that those other methods that you've described wouldn't. There's been a lot of really great journalism written about the fate of the Tigris and Euphrates by people who are doing that to go to one or two sites or who who do in-depth reports or who um, have a specialisation and are able to to write more broadly based on data, based on remote work. Um, But I think think stories are very powerful. Um, I think the story of the river is the story of a body of water that starts in the mountains um, and runs out through the plains to the sea. I think following that and being connected to that um, is a very natural way to write a longer form piece about it, like a book. Uh, And it also connects all of those parts of it to give the broadest possible picture. Um, I also think as, you know, we we relate to to people... uh, uh, we can understand landscapes, we can appreciate them, but we relate to people. And the only way, really, to tell the story of a river is, I think, is to to follow its banks and speak to as many people as you can, and try and collect those opinions. And I don't think you can do that remotely, um, and I don't think anyone can really do that on behalf of anyone else either. Uh, I, I think it's there's interesting ways to 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 do things um, from a distance, but I strongly believe that that's part of the the purpose of of travel and, and exploration and immersion in this day and age. And you know, if we look at organisations like the Royal Geographical Society, you know, they have to be constantly reinventing themselves, and they have to be um, they have to be looking. and I know they are looking at what exploration means and how to bring that into a day and age. How is it more representative? How is it more diverse? How is it um, speaking to the needs and desires of people who live within um certain regions of the world rather than imposing that an idea on them from afar um and exploration is still incredibly important to how we you know move forward with um the advancement and protection of our planet but it has to be constantly reimagined and you know I, I, this is this isn't um this is this is my attempt at doing that, right? We can only do what we can do. Um we can only do what we have the skills to do, um and experience to do. And so this is what I've done. And uh and it's it's I see it as, you know, my contribution or my team's contribution and I hope there will be many others like it in, in different places that um that have a similar ambition.
2: Well I was I was actually gonna mention this to you afterwards, but let's do it online and if you say no i'll take it out <laughs> but um i'm going to start a very unofficial informal book club on the podcast um and i was going to suggest that this was our first one and then maybe you could if you're up for it we'll get a group of people to read it and we could do a little q a afterwards but no it's um just, i mean yeah <laughs> it'll be fun yeah. and you know I, I haven't read it which is what led me on to say this but it's very obvious to me that what you are doing is a lot and more than enough and you know i think it's it's nice that you say, and talking about this a bit more with people, we can only do what we can do and that is enough. And I think that's a really important message when we face such major problems and hurdles and that, that feeling of like that overwhelmed nature of, oh my God, there's so much to fix and so much to do in so many different fields, whether that's human, whether that's environmental, whether it's a combination of both. Actually doing something is you know, the purpose that we find in that and the pleasure that we find in that. Um, well, it makes us happier, better people, I would argue. Um, And so to ask you a question rather than just rambling, um, I can't remember exactly what you said. I I think it was, um, you think this is the most important work you've ever done? Or was that the phrasing you used? Um, In in what way, if it is the most important work you've ever done, in what way has this experience changed you as a person and a writer, a professional.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's. I think it's the most meaningful work I've ever done.
2: Um, that was the word.
1: In that, that that is something that uh, <clears throat> within myself, um, I feel like it's it's brought more meaning to my life to be involved in this project. Um, <clears throat> whether it's not, the, whether or not it's the most important, I suppose it remains to be seen. Because that's a more external. Uh, Aspect of it, and and I would like it to be important. I would like it to have an impact. Um, I would like it to be part of an ongoing, uh, an ongoing, you know, open source project along the river um, to tie in with some of these groups and you know the group Salman Ran runs, Salat Deutschland, who, who are continually attempting to protect the river with their network of people. Um, so I, I um, that's what I hope for it. And some of that is now out of my control I've, I've written the best book i can and um and uh i'll put it out to the world and see what comes back um it's certainly i guess it's it's hard to it's hard to, to to see how we're changing when we're in the midst of it um it's clear for me to see in my own career how things have changed from you know my earlier travels and and even my earlier books um and and those adventures that were more inward looking and inwardly focused um I I have a couple of ideas of the sort of books I would write like to write next and and they're they're broadly similar to this in in the scope of what I want to write about so I think it's it certainly helped um solidify some of the, the things I believe in in travel writing and in, in journalism and slow travel and slow journalism, um, why those things are important and why they provide something that other very important types of, um, travel and journalism don't. And it's encouraged me to keep doing it, even, even if it's hard. It's also, to be completely honest, it's, it's taught me, um, quite a, it's, it's really humbled me, um, in that I, I did find this really hard. I think our whole team did. Um, I feel more, you know, grateful than ever to have been born where I was and, uh, to have lived the life that I have and, and not to be wed to this river with no, um, other alternative as so many Iraqis and Syrians and, and, and Turks are. Um, and so I, I i kind of feel more than ever i i there's there's a balance I probably need to find too of um of looking after my myself um I'm not sure I'd do this trip again it was it was uh it was it was hard work um I'm glad I did it, and I would do it something else of a of a similar scope if you know what I mean if it felt important enough but um yeah i think there's a, there's a balance just whereby I keep myself. In decent shape to keep doing these things physically and mentally, um, and uh, and keep working on things that I think have the chance of making a difference. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the sort of pre midlife crisis approach that I'm taking to this.
2: Well, now there's a few more things I want to ask you, but I'm going to pick on you ever so slightly, I since I can. But you know, you said um, I wouldn't do this trip again, well would you undo it?
1: <laughs> no, I wouldn't undo it. Um, absolutely not. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if if you, you know, reached into your pocket and pulled out a bunch of cash right now and, and told me you'd pay for me to go back down the river tomorrow, um, I would say no, thank you. Um, but if, uh, if, if you were to, to, you know, find a way for... for me to take back the last few years and take away all the stresses and hardships of planning and carrying out this journey and all the utter devastating misery of writing a book in a (laughs) tiny little room of my own um no I wouldn't I'm I'm really glad that we did it but because of what it entailed um I yeah I'm, I'm I'm glad it's done and I wouldn't do it again um but I, I, I you, you don't know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into a lot of the time with these things, which is absolutely essential to being able to do them.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about purposeful people is why would you do it again? You know, you're you're not a hobbyist. You know, you there's something else to write about. There's something else to experience, and that's what's interesting. And that's why I'm drilling in. Is what you're not saying is I'm done with these journeys because it was too traumatic you wouldn't go again. I. You could be very, very welcome to disagree with me, but I sense that's that's because you've done it and there's so much more to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I also think, um, uh, or at least I like to think, and, and I, I suspect this will be true, um, I'm at a point now where I, I the, the idea of throwing myself into something completely new and unrelated to this is, is quite scary. And I'm, I'm sure I'll do that at some point, but I'm also either... Forever, or at least for a very long time, going to be connected to Iraq and to the river. I still live here, and um, and so I'm going to have an ongoing relationship with that. And I, I want that to be the case. I want to be continually doing what I can, continually writing about it, um, and and updating, you know, my work on it, and so on. So, so it's the book is the first part of that, and and I don't need to go back down the river in order to. So, um, to understand that i've i've done that i can see the kind of fundamental um beauties and challenges of it and i can do the rest in a in a in a more simple way um and then alongside that i, yeah, I do hope i will have something new to throw myself into as well
2: yeah well i'm um, uh, approaching the finale i guess but what is it i i suspect i asked you this when we last spoke which i think is maybe two or three years ago for the podcast. It must be that long. Um, you are very, very well-traveled. To what? what is it about Iraq and that region and that river, or particularly Iraq, I guess, that has grabbed you and caused you to stay?
1: It's a very good question. I thought about it a lot. Um, I think in a very simplistic sense, it, it was, I arrived here in 2016 um, and I... I was, you know, was meant to be here as a as a writer, reporting on the um, the effort to liberate Mosul from ISIS. So I, you know, went out to the front line for a couple of days and tried to report on that, and and really discovered it wasn't my wasn't my beat, wasn't where my expertise lay. And I came back, and a friend here in the city, or took me to the mountains, and um, and his line to me was, you know, you should if if you're going to leave here, you should leave with a, a happy memory of of the beauty that's here, not just the war. Um, and that line and that experience ended up completely changing the course of my life. Now, was it because they, they were the most beautiful mountains I'd ever seen? Probably not. They are, I think they are up there. Um, it's an incredible landscape. It's an incredible place, but I think it was a point in time in my life where I was maybe looking for something more meaningful or, um, I wasn't finding fulfilment living in London and constantly travelling, and to be somewhere here, I'd I'd just written a book about the establishment of hiking trails in other parts of the Middle East, and I saw these mountains that were had these layers of history and culture and faith, and which people had been walking back and forth across for millennia, and in which there was no contemporary hiking trail that reimagined those and used them as a way to heal the landscape and bring back pride and opportunity to people. So I think. uh, all of those things coalesced with my own, with the point in life I was at, and you know, eventually led me to think maybe I should try and make a new life. And um, uh, and the river idea came about because as I was living here, you know, I, I, I was trying to understand the country more, and everything in the country was strung out along the river. It was the thing that bound everything together. And so I, I felt like if I'm going to really understand Iraq, where it's come from, and where it's going. I should follow this river. Um, So we can never predict where life will take us. And that's a large part of the beauty of it. And if you'd told me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, that I would end up living here doing this, it would have been impossible to believe. But the way it's happened very organically seems... suggest to me that I'm in absolutely absolutely the right place Um, and whether I'll be here forever who knows I I, I suspect not but for right now it's it's where I want to be and um and you know I think where I find a lot of personal fulfillment and meaning as well as broader than that
2: yeah I was about to ask I, I very very rarely ask people what they're going to do next and I'm not going to ask you now um but I was going to ask whether or not you plan to stay, but you've gone there. I think I'm fascinated, and this is just personally, I guess, by what's your daily life like? What can you, I mean, almost, can you describe the place that you live to me and what it's like to live there?
1: Yeah, so I live in a city called Erbil, um, which is in the Kurdistan region, northern Iraq. Kurdistan region, semi-autonomous, so it has its own government, and um, it's uh, it's connected to, but but not entirely part of the rest of Iraq. It's seen as much safer. So, you know, if we go back to, um, what you said earlier about the the foreign office advice, this is amber as opposed to, um, red, but it's, it's an incredibly safe place to live. Um, there's, you know, probably 10,000 or more internationals living in the city, humanitarians and diplomats and so on. Um, the centre of this city is a seven thousand year old citadel. This was one of the three major cities of the Assyrian Empire. It's called Arbela back then, which has now become Erbil. Um, uh, the population are predominantly Kurdish, with you know smaller groups of Assyrian Christians and, and others. Um, it's a city of about three million, uh, and it's a very big, busy, noisy, modern. And in, in some parts, incredibly wealthy city, a lot of oil money. So I live on the 16th floor of a modern-day high-rise building. Um, outside my window, I can see construction of more high-rise buildings. The city is full of these rapidly built um, apartment blocks. There are, um, you know, in, in certain parts of town, there are more Mercedes G-class wagons and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches than I've seen anywhere else, maybe outside of, you know, Dubai and the street outside Harrods. Um, there's, there's, it's a city with, you know, a great disparity between the rich and the poor, but it's, um, it has aspirations to be like Dubai, I would say in, in certain ways. Uh, but it, it, it never quite makes it. Um, and, uh, about half an hour drive north of here is this band of mountains I've spent most of the last few years of my life in. Um, and so where I am geographically to the north is uh, Turkey. Um, east, three-hour drive is border with Iran. And west, three four-hour drive is the border with Syria. Um, and, you know, we're in the plains here, but everything else is mountains. And so my day-to-day life is, for the last couple of years, has been blocks of writing from my desk looking out over the city here um and blocks of time out in the mountains developing this long distance walking path called the Zagros Mountain Trail uh and you know going to going to a pub quiz um in a in a in a bar in the Christian district um uh you know going to restaurants and um Pubs and uh, cafes, you know, th- that are pretty similar to anywhere else the world around, but also being able to walk down into this um, old citadel and bazaar area as well and have a, a very different experience. But it's a place that you can you can make whatever you want of uh, from it, and that's why it's kept me here for a few years.
2: It's—I mean—I I was going to say it's so funny. I don't know whether it's funny or whether it's awful, and I'm very happy to admit my Western white naivety and prejudice but i mean even from the last time we spoke up until now i have pictured you living in like a stone house embedded into a mountainside in a foothill village somewhere and i guess it just it says it all right i don't know if everyone else is like me or if everyone's sat there shouting saying no matt that's you but no, I, I think I think
1: I, I I think I disappoint quite a lot. There was someone who came here recently um, who was interested in doing some volunteer work on the trail, and you know, ran into a friend of mine um, in in a restaurant or bar somewhere, and, and was asking, you know, did they did they know me and did they know how they could touch with me to to do some work on the trail? And you know, my friend said, yeah, yeah, he he lives in this building over here, and. and and he said their face dropped in sort of terrible disappointment that I that I wasn't living in this stone-built house in the side of a, a mountain somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's... A, but it, it's what I love about it is that this is a representation of... You know, this is um, Iraqi Kurdistan right now is this city. Um, this is... I, I like being in the midst of where this region is pitching itself as to where it wants to go. But a large part of my time is spent in the mountains, in these very rural villages, developing relationships in those communities to create homestays and find local guides, so that this trail we're building can can have a an infrastructure that people can walk and stay and you know experience all of that. So, for a few days or a week at a time, I will stay in um, village homes with people and and try and deepen those relationships and try and understand those places. And and then it's nice to come back and come to a you know, a relatively um, sort of sterile clinical apartment block where there's running water and, you know, where I can get all those luxuries. And um, I'm definitely at an age and point in life now where if there's luxuries on offer, I don't want to deny, <laughs> deny it to myself all the time. If There's no need to.
2: Yeah, yeah any fool can suffer. Um, yeah. Do you speak the local languages?
1: Um, I've been learning Arabic for about four years now. And it's still take three lessons a week here so it's it's at a a reasonable level i guess um and i take some kurdish lessons i would say my kurdish is pretty poor uh but my my colleague for the trail laween speaks all the you know all three major dialects of kurdish here and i understand enough to you know have a quick chat with someone about this and that um so yeah that's been another fun part of it is is the particularly Arabic, Arabic, such a rich, um, incredible language. And and whilst I'm still, you know, after four years at a very early point in my journey through the language, it's just every week I I feel more connected to things because I understand a little bit more of, um, you know, the cultural context through it. So that's been another great part of being here.
2: Yeah, I envy that. I've been having an Arabic lesson a week for about two years at this desk and it is going mm. terribly. But I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 34 <laughs> years old. I'm not six and fully immersed and, but it's, you know, it's fun. Yeah. but
1: Yeah, it is. It is fun. I mean, if you immerse yourself, you, you'd learn quicker, but I think you can just, even an hour a week is better than nothing, right? And you, um, yeah. you still, some stuff still sticks and it's, it's just a way to get your brain to think about it and it is. It's a beautiful language. I've, I've really
2: enjoyed learning. Yeah, I've been working on a long-term film project out in, in Wadi Rum in Jordan, and I'm desperate to learn the language mm-hmm. um, to support mm-hmm. that project. But whenever I go out there, I, I work with this same group of Bedouin men who are my age and a bit younger, and they just laugh for the first five minutes, and then they start speaking English. <laughs> but yeah. They are trying to teach me, but I think they're messing with me. <laughs> um, well, I think also, you know, one of the things in Arabic is
1: there's so many dialects and yeah. there is a very distinct kind of, well, many distinct Bedouin dialects as well, which often are, are much more sound, much more guttural and, and gruff and have sounds yeah. that, you know, some of this, um, the more Levantine dialects in, in the rest of Jordan and Syria and so on don't have. And I find that hard yeah. to to speak and understand, even after all this time.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, we're wildly off-piste, but um, I'm enjoying it i you know because it was such a last time since we spoke um you've, you're still working on this trail you know how long is it when will it be done what's the plan with it
1: yeah it's um it, it has been a while it, it's uh i guess it's been well, it has been going in some form since 2016 at least since the conception of the idea but 2019 was when we first got funding and started to formalize it Um, It's called the Zagros Mountain Trail. It's 220 kilometers long in its current form. Um, It runs from a a village called Shush, which is kind of due north of Erbil in the mountains. Um, And it can run in either direction, but but primarily we've intended it to run um, from west to east. So it runs uh, for 14 days and walking, 14 stages, to the base camp of Halgur Mountain, which is the highest mountain in Iraq and in Kurdistan. So it passes through 35 plus communities. um, And, you know, there'll be different itineraries that walkers can follow. They can do it in those 14 days or they can do it faster or they can do it slower as they like. Um, At the minute, we're running weekly walks on the weekend, taking groups of people from the city out to different sections of the trail. There's actually one happening today um, while I'm here. Uh, And... um, we run a couple of weekend walks and we hope that by the autumn it will be open for, uh, group tours, um, run through certain, um, providers that we have got relationships with. Um, and then by next year there'll be GPX data and, um, it'll be released to the independent travelers who I imagine are probably the, the, the predominant listening audience for this. So. Um, Hold on a little bit longer, but we, we've we got a website for it. Everything's just related to the name Zagros Mountain Trail and all the information's on there. Um, and it's beautiful. It's, it's uh, having walked, you know, many thousands of miles in my life. I am biased about this one, but the reason I'm biased is because I decided to stop here and work on it because it was some of the nicest and um, most, you know, enriching walking I'd ever done.
2: Amazing. I've just suddenly got this overwhelming sort of inspiration to go and run it which would be yeah
1: yeah there's there's there is no um fkt yet on the trail <laughs> so um that can be yours i, I it doubt be yours. it'll be mine
2: for long if i do get it
1: <laughs> well at least if, if you get it once no one can ever take that away from you you can it yeah, yeah. first <laughs> <laughs>
2: um ace all right oh no what we have to do you have to tell everybody where they can get your book and when they can get it
1: Ah, uh, yes. Um, this is the, the thing I'm worst at. Uh, so the book's called Wounded Tigress. It's available from the 6th of April and it's available from um, all good bookstores in the UK and uh, online, in-store, any of you like, but you should be able to find it under Wounded Tigress.
2: Amazing. Ace, and as per last time, I end all of these podcasts with the same two questions. I'd love to see the correlation and see whether your answers have changed. <laughs> And whether you can even remember, but um, the first one is what scares you.
1: Writing a bad book <laughs> is what scares me. Um, yeah, or at least not getting the message across that I want to, that I want to get across. I've thought about that a lot in the build-up to publication, which is probably inevitable, but um, if I, maybe if I make it more broad, I guess uh, you know poorly representing the, the, the sort of messaging I want to share is maybe what scares me right now. Um plus getting shot at on rivers. <laughs> that one's in the past now. Oh
2: god, we didn't even talk about getting shot at. Um
1: no, maybe that's for another time. Yeah.
2: Um what brings you hope?
1: Um community. Community is, is the primary thing that, that brings me hope. The the way in which people can work together to create something beautiful and wonderful. Uh which I live every week here in the mountains and you know, live throughout this journey with people along the river um, and which I see back home in the UK and Ireland as well. But um, the power of community to make change is a really special thing that I'm learning more about every year.
2: Amazing. Right. That was a long one, but a good one. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.